Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Church That Changes. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 10th, 2015. Can the church ever change? The oldest institution in Western history? That's the question that historian Gary Wills poses in his new book that I read last week, The Future of the Catholic Church with Pope Francis. Wills is both a fierce critic and a devoted son of the church. Although there are reasons to be pessimistic, his book offers an optimistic prognosis by one of America's most distinguished intellectuals. To say that the church will never change, writes Wills, quote, it helps not to know much history, end quote. It's believing a fiction to say that the church has had an immutable past, that the church was always what it has become. That's patently false. The church didn't always have priests, which Wills calls a failed tradition, or popes. For 1,300 years, it didn't teach transubstantiation, and for almost 1,900 years, there was no such thing as papal infallibility. In ways both large and small, for good and ill, the church has always changed. Change is the respiration of the church, its way of breathing in and breathing out. And just as it's a fiction to say that the church has had an immutable past, so too is the idea that its future is a foregone conclusion. Wills's new book explores five ways that the Catholic Church has changed across the centuries. First, for a thousand years, Latin reigned as the putative common language for a universal church. This despite the fact that almost no one understood it. Latin, as Catholicism's eternal language, expressed itself most powerfully in the liturgy, with the priest's back turned to the congregation, and in Jerome's 4th century translation of the Bible, which Vulgate Bible became the definitive edition of the most influential text in Western European society. Nonetheless, Latin faded away after Vatican II, proof that the church could change in the right direction after so many centuries of harmful change. The church-state relationship has constantly changed. At first, the state ignored the church. Then it persecuted the church. And if Constantine later took over the church, Wills observes, in the high Middle Ages, it's just as true that the church took over the sword of the state with its crusades, inquisitions, interdictions, in the christening and excommunicating of kings. And more recently, liberation theology has opposed the state in defense of the poor. Then there's what Wills calls the tragic absurdity of Christian anti-Semitism. At first, Jewish believers welcomed pagan Gentiles into the church. Later, 
Gentile believers denounced Jews as Christ killers and Satan worshipers. But even on this painful subject, there's been genuine progress, including the acknowledgement that the New Testament documents themselves contain anti-Semitic elements. Anti-Semitism is by no means gone, Wills admits, but he says it's now a shame to show its face in decent surroundings. In his discussion of natural law, Wills explores changing views of contraception, patriarchy, and abortion. By the 1990s, so few Catholics agreed with papal teaching on contraception that those who did were what he calls statistically non-existent. It was a good example of how sometimes church authorities don't exactly retract their positions, they just accept the fact that the people of God have moved on. Radical change has even come to one of the sacraments, penance and confession. There used to be long lines at confessionals on a Saturday before a penitent could go to communion on Sunday. Yet now the confessional boxes are being removed, or, as Wills observes Riley, used by church janitors to store their equipment. One of the most radical changes in the church is described by Luke in the reading from Acts chapter 10 for this week. It's the story of the Jewish apostle Peter and the Gentile soldier Cornelius. There are many layers to this story, but notice the obvious, that the real convert here, the person who really needs a radical change of mind and heart, is not Cornelius the centurion, but Peter the believer. And so Peter repents and confesses, quote, God has shown me that I should not call any person impure or unclean. We should hope and pray and work for a better church. But we should also reject the purist's dream of a perfect church. Jesus described his kingdom as a field of wheat that's infested with weeds, a net full of good and bad fish, and as a field of wheat that needs to be winnowed. Nothing in our sinful world is perfect. Wills reminds us, not the church and not the state. Only after the harvest, at the end of this age, do we enter an ideal community in heaven. Until then, living between the heavenly city of God and the earthly city of man, we do the best we can in an imperfect third city, here and now. In Wills's view, Pope Francis knows that the church is not changeless, permanent, or predictable. Indeed, Francis has surprised people with his words and deeds. Pope Francis listens to the laity, the sense of the faithful. He refuses to condemn. When asked about gay people, he said, Who am I to judge? Most surprising of all, says Wills, is Pope Francis's admission of how bad a Jesuit provincial he had been. How often have we heard any pope tell us how wrong he was? 
So a pope who admits that he's been wrong and who believes in a God of surprises bodes well for the future of the Catholic Church, says Wills. Protestants and Catholics alike to do well and follow his lead. For books this week, we have a review by Debbie Thomas. The title is Wearing God, Clothing, Laughter, Fire, and Other Overlooked Ways of Meeting God. The author is Lauren Winner. New York, HarperCollins, 2015, 286 pages. King, Father, Shepherd, Light. These are a few of the stock metaphors churches use to describe God. They're not wrong, they're profound and true. But in fixating on them, writes Episcopal priest and Duke University professor Lauren Winner, we have truncated our relationship with the divine and cut ourselves off from the more voluble and variable witness of the scriptures. In her sixth book, Wearing God, Winner minds this more variable witness to offer her readers a meticulously researched and often startling series of reflections on overlooked biblical images of God. She explores God as clothing, as smell, as bread, as vine and wine, as laboring woman, laughter, and as flame. She unpacks these metaphors with great care, pulling back layer after layer to reveal new treasures. Just when you think she's exhausted a particular image, she turns it again, allowing a more nuanced insight to emerge. Especially impressive is the way Winner keeps an eye on her own privilege as she engages with these ancient pictures of God. Whenever she's tempted to sanitize or whitewash, she reminds herself that God identifies most with the most marginalized. Her approach is devotional, serious, self-deprecating, and bold. Though there are moments when her prose falters, there are many more when the language in this book simply sings, doing full justice to the multi-layered poetry of Scripture. My favorite chapter is the one that begins with the God of Isaiah 42, who groans, quote, Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Winner's shocking paraphrase asks readers to imagine a God at the extreme end of vulnerability and suffering, quote, God with a baby's head threatening to tear at God's vaginal flesh. All images of God are necessarily partial. Winner finally reminds us at the end of her ambitious book, and this is as it should be. It's in our poverty of expression that we truly find God, our all and all. A review by Debbie Thomas, the author, Lauren Winner. The title of the book, Wearing God, 2015. For film this week, we go to the countries of India and China. 
The title of the film is called It's a Girl, page from the year 2012. In many places in the world, the three most dangerous words at birth are It's a Girl. This documentary film focuses on India and China, the two most populous countries in the world, and two of the most notorious places where gendercide continues, despite laws against it. By one United Nations estimate, there are 200 million so-called missing girls due to female feticide, infanticide, and gross neglect. In India, gendercide is driven by dowry practices. A groom is entitled to receive a dowry, and a bride must pay one. In a land of horrible poverty, this means a huge economic loss for families of girls and an economic gain for families of boys. In China, gendercide is driven by the one-child policy that's strictly enforced upon pain of forced abortions, forced sterilization, fines, and losing your job. This film allows women to tell their own stories and draws upon experts and advocates to shine a harsh light on this dreadful practice. For more on this subject, see one of the many websites such as the Gendercide Awareness Project. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, the title of the film, It's a Girl. For poetry this week, we posted a poem by Maya Angelou. It's called Touched by an Angel. We unaccustomed to courage, exiles from delight, live coiled in shells of loneliness until love leaves its high holy temple and comes into our sight to liberate us into life. Love arrives and in its train comes ecstasies, old memories of pleasure, ancient histories of pain. Yet if we are bold, love strikes away the chains of fear from our souls. We are weaned from our timidity. In the flush of love's light, we dare be brave. And suddenly we see that love costs all we are and will ever be. Yet it is only love which sets us free. Poetry by Maya Angelou, touched by an angel. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 10th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.